Okay, welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Dave Rawlinson. And we are your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. This is episode number 63. Yeah, sorry for last week. I said the wrong episode number. Oh, that's right. You said 61 instead of 62. Right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, we need to get better at making sure that our sheets are, our, our revision control is, is up to date. <laughs> So if you enjoy listening to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, please let others know about us. Tell a coworker, a loved one, a friend, or share it on social media. That would be at MacroFab on Twitter. That's right. I think there's a Facebook as well. Yeah. For those that want to suffer through cat photos and pictures of your family. Your, your grandma posting her, her last meal. Oh, God, that's dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I meant I meant the meal she ate last. Not oh my gosh! Yeah, that's terrible. I I apologize for that. <laughs> so um, we might reward your love uh, by sending you a free koozie, a little shameless self promotion. Never hurts, right? So uh, if we will have a code word somewhere in the podcast, keep your eyes or your ears open. Yeah, your ears, you will not see it. <laughs> So we will uh, we will call out the code word, and if you email us at podcast at macrofab.com and tell us the code word and your address, we will ship a koozie off to you. Yes, the address is important because you can we cannot email goods yet. That's right. At least not yet. Okay, so our guest this week is Dave Rollinson. He had an awesome intro that he just pulled off. That's right. Um, he is from Heavy Robotics. That's, That's correct. correct. That's correct. Uh, Heavy robotics. Uh, he is a robotics engineer with a PhD in robotics and a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Carnegie Mellon University. His thesis research advanced the control and design of articulated module snake-like robots with a focus towards real-world applications like urban search and rescue and industrial inspection. Ooh. Pulled right off their website. <laughs> like we always do. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's that's on our website. That means my bio is out of date. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you yeah. can enlighten us yeah. and tell us how uh, what needs to be updated. Yeah. No, exactly. I think that's I think that's like, that's uh that's actually uh pretty accurate. I guess if I were to think about a bio, that's probably like uh my most tangible stuff to date. Um, Compresses your entire life down into two sentences. Yeah. Yeah. So like uh, yeah, the, the, when you when you kind of take a step back and kind of compress what you work on, it can be kind of depressing. There was a, a thing they did at uh, Carnegie Mellon kind of right as I was finishing up my PhD called a three-minute thesis, and it was like compress five years of work down to three minutes, and the fact that you could actually do it was in some ways kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds brutal, though. It was, yeah, it was great. No, it's, um, be, being able to communicate is actually, uh, it's, it's kind of one of the side effects of being in a startup that's actually really kind of interesting is you're, you're going out to a much broader audience and trying to be able to concisely say what you're doing in a way that is both um, interesting and meaningful to other people uh, is, is actually like a really important skill. Well, I, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but I've certainly uh, gone to Heavy Robotics, the uh, your website, and uh, I think you guys have done a fantastic job of communicating what you do. Cool. All right. Thanks. That's, that's also tough because we're kind of making it up as we go too, so. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there's, there's plenty of, let's just put it this way. There's a, there's a really good mixture of uh, text and video that kind of just drives home exactly what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess I should probably just, uh, real quick say for, 
uh, people listening, like heavy robotics, what the company does in a nutshell is we are making smart robotic modular building blocks. Um, so smart robotic actuators. What we're focusing on is basically single joints that you could put together to make any robot you want, with the inspiration being that um, we would really like building a robot to be as easy as putting together Legos. Um, that's the dream. That's where we're going. Um, and where we're starting is basically a, a, a smart actuator that you give it power, you give it Ethernet, and then you're off to the races. So how I, I guess so basically the the hardware, the guts are done and you just apply a really good, I guess, API on top of that to control it. Yeah, I would I would say the, the hardware and the guts are, are done for the product that you see on our website now, um, what we call the X-Series Actuator. What we have is basically the ability to kind of wrap up motion control in a, in a compact form factor, but the details of that, that form factor can change for every application. So it's all about kind of trying to find the right sweet spot in terms of size, power, price point, um, uh, capability, a whole bunch of other things. Um, but you're, you're exactly right that there's, there are basically two main parts, and one is picking the form factor for the physical product, the actuator. And then, yeah, the other part, which is really just as important, is the, the APIs in terms of how you control these from a computer, how you coordinate them. Because there's, there's, I mean, you guys know, there's, there's, there's a ton that changes from going from an individual joint to coordinating as, a, as an entire robot. There's a whole kind of layer there that is actually very difficult to get right. And that's what we're trying to solve while at the same time making flexible for people so that they can customize however they want. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If if any if anyone hasn't um, done the trigonometry, but but behind like a like a three jointed robotic arm, give it a shot. It it's nowhere near as easy as it seems. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there, uh, um, it's 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 a whole branch of kind of basically math called kinematics, and it's just basically the math of like motion, the math of representing things in space. And as soon as you go into three D, yeah, it gets really hairy, it gets really nasty. Um, and that's a lot of what people wrap up for you. If you buy a robotic arm, you're kind of basically paying really smart people to have sat down and done all this math for this specific arm. And what we're trying to do is actually kind of wrap that up in a way so that you could build any arm and still get, you know, as much as we can give you most of those benefits. It's a little more complicated than an Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but But you're actually selling these kind of modular units that act as joints, right? That's correct. So, so, uh, yeah, what we sell is basically a, a joint that has all the control and everything wrapped up. Um, it's designed so that you can pretty much just bolt it to whatever whatever you want. Um, we have kind of bearings built into it, so you don't have to spend too much time kind of carefully thinking about how you how you load it, how you have to support it. You know, kind of externally, the idea is that you should just be able to clamp to it and cantilever it, um, so you don't have to be too much of a of a mechie to really per you don't have to worry about breaking it. Basically, it's it's really robust. You can use it as a wheel. You can use it as a base. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, I guess we'll wind the clock back a bit and, uh, like how did you get into robotics? Cause that seems to be like all you did in terms of your bio. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's all that's on my bio. So, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more behind there's, that. Yeah. There's, there's more behind that. So, uh, I grew up in a small town in Virginia, a little town called Clifton Forge and, uh, in high school, didn't really do a whole lot in robotics, but decided for whatever reason I wanted to do engineering. Um, and then came to Carnegie Mellon for school. And my second summer job was basically an internship here at a company in Pittsburgh called Red Zone Robotics. And we made sewer robots, like, like literally robots that went down into the sewers 
um, into poo. And uh, that's actually and, what I was about to ask. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Um, and uh, and I, you know, it sounds silly, but that's that's what got me hooked on it because I was seeing kind of this amazing technology that was being put to work in an area that needed it that still needs it, you know, really, really desperately. So infrastructure mm. in general, and in particular pipes where they're underground, they're aging, they're super expensive to replace, they're super expensive to maintain, um, and the problem's only getting worse as they get older. Um, and and so the, the breadth of things that you needed to be able to know and manage um, just kind of always made things interesting on day-to-day, and then just kind of the motivation of really, like, seeing how you know, pushing this technology forward to really impact the world in a real way got me super excited. So I'd say my work into robotics really started with that, uh, which I guess was my sophomore-ish year of college back in like 2004. Um, and then it's it's kind of grown from there. So I like I worked at Red Zone and then basically went back to grad school in 2009 to focus more on the control side. So before uh, I had really been mostly mechanical engineering, focusing on really like the nuts and bolts side. So designing really robust equipment, housings, mechanisms, tools um, to really stand up to both the environment of the sewers, which is just kind of a harsh, brutal environment. Um, but also kind of like just as important to learn is the the way people use your equipment, too. So you're designing these robots. So they go out to the field and the guys that actually go deploy these things, um, you know, they're really hard on the equipment. They're not hard on the equipment because they're you know, being mean. It's just because that's, that's how they have to get their job done. And so kind of creating an appreciation for the fact that people, the way that people use your stuff, isn't the way necessarily that you would have originally intended and having kind of like a respect for that and really kind of like a love for embracing that was also um, really cool, which is kind of a, a spirit we've tried to, I've tried to bring with me back into the heavy too, because I'm super excited to see the way people use like our modules and our building blocks, even if what they're doing is like breaking them in new uh, amazing ways. <laughs> I, I, I was about to ask, um, you know, you were talking about the enclosures and stuff that you were designing for for the uh, sewer robots. Is there a rating for, like, is it IP67 rated where, you know, you have to make sure it's submersible? Or is there another rating for poo? Uh, not for poo specifically, but, like, from a, <laughs> from, from a robustness standpoint, um, you know, it's, it's IP68 plus. Like, in the grand scheme of things, okay. like, if it... It's it's to me as a as a as a mechie, um, if you really really needed to be robust in the field, like it's it's got to be like O ring sealed. There's kind of like of a quick line that you cross between like kind of sitting outside in the rain and then like beyond that, it's pretty much gonna be good to sitting at the bottom of a swimming pool indefinitely. Like that's yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah. of that's kind of the level you immediately need to take it to for it to really work in the field all the time being thrashed and bashed and all that other stuff. So like every, yeah, everything I designed was IP 68. So like O-ring seals, in some cases we were in like explosive environments. So we had to be able to do like a positive nitrogen purge and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you were like class one, div one, not like oh, officially, that... not officially certified, okay. but we were basically designing, we were designing with those specs in mind. Um, okay, okay, okay. but, but yeah, so that, that level of kind of sealed robustness. Exactly. So right. I, Another tangent on that same subject is like, did you ever get a device back from like the field and it's like all clean and you open it up and it's filled with the sludge? Uh, yeah. I mean, so what was, what was interesting is we, <laughs> yeah, basically, I mean, we, de- <laughs> the side of it that we, that I was on, we deployed all our own equipment. So like we were the people that dunked our own stuff. The, okay. the, 
bigger bit is that like once things go in the sewer, there's a certain like film that never really ever comes off. So we would like, Ugh. we would borrow stuff from people and they'd bring it back to be like, you didn't clean it. They're like, Oh, we cleaned it. <laughs> trust, trust us. That's as, that's as good as it'll ever get. Man. <laughs> the metal has absorbed the properties. Well, well that sounds like uh, great fundamentals for, for getting into uh, some, some, the, the robotics that you have at, uh, at heavy. So, um, Let's talk about the, the, the beginnings of, of Hebby. Can you give us some information on that? Yeah, so um, so Hebby was founded by, by five people. Um, it's uh, Howie Chosett, who's a professor at CMU, and then I was one of uh, four other people in his lab, both staff and, and students. Uh, Matt Tesh, myself, Florian Enner, Curtis Layton. Um, we had all been kind of working together in the lab in one form or another for three or four years at that point, and kind of we worked on snake robots, was, was kind of our, our main thing. And for a while, we were like, man, there's, there has to be an application for snake robots. There has to be an application for snake robots. And as we kept looking for, for ways we could start a company around that, um, what we wound up finding is that for any sort of task where you'd want to take a, a snake robot, so like a long modular robot that could kind of twist and turn its way through any sort of shape or terrain, by the time you got a robot that could actually do something from like a controls perspective in that environment you're basically better off taking that time and building a purpose-built robot for that task mm. but the act of building that purpose-built robot was also equally a pain in the butt in different ways um, and as we kind of took a step back what we realized is rather than a snake what we really had were these modular building blocks that we're using to build our snake robots um, and so we that's what we wound up kind of taking and uh, and pushing forward so rather than take snakes and make them general purpose take the technology that's underlying the snakes and try to make that a little bit more general purpose. Yeah. So, so like a, a just a, a box full of robotic elbows. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So what with, if you look at kind of the, the progression of stuff from the lab and even some of the stuff that you'll see on our website, um, you know, the, the first modules we have, we call the, the S series, um, S for snake, I guess. And, um, and, uh, you know, that, that was a certain form factor and they're sleek and they're small and they're sealed, but they were limited in a lot of ways. So what I, what I've told people is basically we're taking that same technology that was built for snake robots and making something that's good for anything except a snake robot, because that turns out to be a much larger market. <laughs> Actually, um, to go back to, 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 to robotic elbows, I think that will make yeah. that the code word. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, code word, robotic elbows. <laughs> Email podcast at macrofab.com for your koozie. <laughs> so, yeah, more, more, that out more robots. Okay, so yeah. you have you, uh, right now on your on your website, you have two different uh, models. You have the, the X model, and yep. uh, remind me what the other one is again. S. The, other, the other one is the S, okay, which, yeah, the, which, is, which I found out is horrible for audio, right? Because those two letters sound the same. So it's like X is an X-ray and S as Sierra. Um, the, are the two series? Yeah, right. So, so the the S's in Sierra is the is the elbow style. Yeah, and the and the xylophone X <laughs> is the is uh, is explain that it's it's like a like a like a, a servo in a way. Yeah, right? it's it's a servo. It kind of uh, you know if I were to describe it over the air, it kind of looks like a a metal tape dispenser is kind of the shape of it, but the middle of it spins continuously. Um, so kind of the whenever you're designing kind of a new widget, you know, you, you pick your constraints to start with. And we kind of knew the motor we were using on the inside and everything else was basically driven by the fact that we knew we wanted to connect this as quickly and easily and cheaply as possible. And we already ran ethernet. So 
basically it's a, it's a kind of a flat pancake form factor with an output hub that you can bolt to. And then on the sides, you basically plug in two RJ45s because you basically daisy chain Ethernet up and down to communicate to these things. And I'm really not exaggerating. Like the form factor of this actuator is basically driven by the fact that we had to put two RJ45 connectors, which are enormous, uh, on the on the sides of the modules, and then we wanted a through bore through the center that could pass an RJ45 connector, um, or you know more than one after you after you string them through. So, um, so so your form factor was actually determined by the connector. Yeah, that's basically right. Huh. That's uh, great. Yeah. Uh, so it 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 looks kind of like a little bit weird by itself, but it's turned out to be uh, kind of a really good form factor because that also, by making it flat and broad, you can bear a lot of force, you can bear a lot of torque. So even though some of our uh, like uh, smaller gear ratio modules really don't put out that much torque, um, you can still use them as like the wheels of a cart, um, for example, because the, the actual load rating at the output is, is quite high. And then the through bore is actually, I think, pretty critical for creating flexible tasks where um, you, know, you have a wrist that might be able to turn you know, two, three, four, five times. You can pass things like pneumatics through the center of it. Um, we've really kind of, I think, hit upon that as like a, a pretty decent general purpose form factor, at least for for the time being. Oh, that's great. So so you have um, configurable flavors of these? Yeah, so there's, um, what's on the website right now is the X5. Um, and there's three different gear ratios kind of within within that cl- that that module. So there's a there's a spur gear train on the inside, and by changing out two of the stages, we can give you everything uh, from a nine newton meter uh, continuous torque at 15 rpm to about one and a half newton meters of torque at about 90 rpm. Um, one of the things we we kind of were looking at as we kind of looked at the market was that a lot of people are are looking at making manipulators and the the, what you want in terms of torque and speed at different points in a manipulator, whether it's the base or the shoulder or the elbow or the wrist, are, are very, very different. So we wanted to, within one form factor, support kind of different gear ratios, trade-offs between speed and torque. And then another one that's not on the website yet is what we call the X8, which is literally the X5, but just kind of stretched and fatter. So it's basically the same gear ratios, um, but double the power, so more torque at those same speeds. So it's got um, a bigger motor in there? It's got a, it's got a bigger motor um, and then thicker gear faces to bear the higher torque. Um, but what's cool is we we actually reuse the exact same electronics. So it's the same circuit board in both, more or less the same firmware in both. Basically the same firmware with different uh, configurations. Runs all the same APIs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to basically kind of grow out the range, starting at the bottom, going up, um, while trying to kind of keep things manageable from a from a logistics perspective. Eventually, I think we want to have about uh, probably about twelve different. SKUs covering basically all the speed and torque combos of kind of upper body, upper body torso by doing tricks like that. So the, um, the rotating mech, the bearing interface, mm-hmm. um, like, cause that's gotta probably be one of the most complicated things in that, that device, the X block. Yeah. Um, cause like, cause you've got to do, cause, cause a lot of times when you design something like this, you have a, known like it's going to be side load or it's going to be uh, a th- um, a thrust bearing or something like that how did you go about in designing that if you can um so in that one actually kind of the the, the od was really driven the, the size of it was actually very much driven by the torque of the the highest gear ratio so the the forces that the teeth of the gears internally were going to see at the highest gear ratio kind of drove teeth of a certain size of a certain diameter. Um, and then another thing I'll say is 
all of these actuators are what we call series elastic actuators, um, which is basically means that we've taken uh, a robotic servo, which is normally very stiff. It's a motor and then a gear train, and then that's about it. What we do is we um, deliberately put a spring uh, between the gear train, the end of the gear train and the output, um, and that makes the, the actuator physically compliant, uh, and it also lets you basically sense the deflection of the spring uh, to control the torque. Hmm. So a key part of these actuators is that they're not just position controlled, they're also torque controlled. So if you're familiar with uh, robots like Baxter or Sawyer from Rethink Robotics, basically the same technology is baked in um, to these actuators. And so the, the spring we have basically has to sit on the output that also kind of drives the outer diameter. Um, and then from that, it's a matter of basically just trying to find commodity bearings um, that go on the output. So in that case, that's a we started off with basically a 45 millimeter inner diameter uh, uh, thin section ball bearing the 6709ZZ, for those of you who really know bearings. And then uh, going forward, now that we have a little bit more kind of experience under our belt, we're actually going to be moving to a, uh, a cross-roller bearing for all of these. Because um, like what you pointed out, like there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways that people can load things. Um, and most industrial robots actually have what are called cross-roller bearings, which are instead of having balls uh, in a bearing like you would normally have, they're actually a bunch of cylinders that... Um, or slightly mm -hmm. tapered cylinders that are alternated, um, and they're extremely rigid, and they can handle um, oh, not so just... It's a, so it's like a, it's a roller bearing, but you said they're, ta uh, they're tapered but and crossed? They're, so... they're, yeah, they're, they're crisscrossed. So think of it as um, in a straight line, it would be a whole bunch of like really short cylinders, so like maybe like uh -huh. 2 millimeters wide and 2 millimeters long, and they alternate in terms of leaning to the left, leaning to the right, leaning to the left, leaning to the right. So and they almost like, look braided? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then it, now if you if you take that and you put it in a circle, what you have is basically a ring of these things, and they can take thrust loads and, and radial loads really strong, but most importantly, they take what's called cross-moment loading. So you could basically cantilever something off to the side and hold a, a ton of force because the, the contact points of these things are all in a, a line as opposed to like a single point, theoretically, like you have with a ball. Hmm. Um, so we're moving, moving to that going forward, which... Um, Add some expense to the modules, but uh, <laughs> I was really... just about to say that sounds really cool and extremely expensive. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm curious with this uh, spring that's added into kind of the drive chain, um, does that uh, affect your positional accuracy? Does that kind of make it a little bit spongy? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. So, um, the way I describe series elasticity to people is that um, the 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 compliance or kind of springiness of your system, you're deliberately making a trade-off between being able to do force control well and doing position control well. Mm -hmm. um, so the stiffer you are, the easier it is to control your position. Um, and and, but and the, to stop on a dime. And to, to, to stop on a dime if you know you need to, to stop. Uh, but the ability to control your force uh, becomes much more difficult because you have to react much more quickly and your system responds much more, you know, much more stiffly. So if you kind of think of it as like a, the extreme is like a slinky, right? Like if I take a slinky and I drop it down, I can hit the top of the table and I can kind of move my hand up and down and very easily, like if it was sitting on top of a scale, I could, I have lots of room in which I could adjust my hand to kind of dial in exactly as much weight as hanging down on that scale, but controlling the, the end of its position is a, is a nightmare. Right. So, you know, depending upon whether you care more about position control or force control, um, kind of dictates how much compliance you might want your system and kind of kind of walking that line is something you know, we're we're still exploring really too. Yeah, and and, and Parker and I when uh, we, we both kind of watched uh, some of your videos of the the kind of widgets and gizmos that you created with these 
uh, and and the whole time we're like, oh yeah, yeah, no, we're we're gonna get these. We we are gonna get these and make something out of it because we have some uh, we have some projects right now that 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 you know go right along with these kind of devices that we're working on at Macrofab right now. Uh, and so you know, I was curious, what is you know, the accuracy and repeatability on these devices? Yeah, so the 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 classic academic answer is it depends um but the uh <laughs> not always is yeah right so but the at at a joint level we have repeatability that is you know down in the the arc minute range right like that's mm -hmm. that's that's unloaded so at a, at a joint level um we have extremely high resolution encoding on the output and if it's unloaded um you can dial things in very accurately so but putting things into together into a system um which is what most people care about if you're making an arm for example, that has kind of human scale reach. And with these modules we have right now, you have about a, a kilogram payload. You're looking at repeatability that's in, you know, a range of about a millimeter. It's like millimeter level repeatability for kind of like a, a loaded system doing kind of like a real world task. Um, but the, the joints themselves have, uh, you know, a, a sub arc minute. Well, right, right. I mean, of course, your your accuracy changes once you... Uh, integrate them all into a, yeah. a giant system, and 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 for us, it it, it really does come down to uh, control. So we have we've basically built in um, as as high resolution sensing on the position as as we can get. Um, but the the limiting factor is basically in terms of how tight you can dial in the controls. Partly because uh, since these things are um, uh, compliant, like elastic, you can't really uh, crank up the gains like you can on a stiff arm. So in addition to just kind of making the position control a little bit more difficult, if you try to like physically in, in the, in controls, make the arm as stiff as an industrial arm, um, you actually start to oscillate because you know, the, the frequency at which the thing will start to jitter is much lower because you're much, uh, more compliant. Yeah. That, I, I'm going to guess you hit that spring and it's that, that, that encoder keeps trying to adjust the, uh, motor, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, there's, well, there's... it shouldn't do that. Well, no, yeah. I'm saying this, this. If he makes it, as, as he's explaining, like, if he, you make it as tight as a rigid arm. Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah, so, like, if if uh, if there are any mechies listening and they remember their, you know, junior-level controls, whatever, resonant frequency is screwed of K over M, right? So, like, the stiffer, the higher the resonant frequency. And basically, you can theoretically control past the resonant frequency, but essentially, if you start, if anything non-ideal happens, like, I don't know, noise in your velocity readings, like there always are in robots, then like going past that, you basically, you very quickly get in a mode where you want to oscillate. So kind of like a rule of thumb, you want to stay at like kind of half your resonant frequency to avoid kind of the jitter. And for an industrial robot, you're super stiff that your resonant frequency is up in like the hundreds of hertz and it just never matters. But when you're more compliant, where our resonant frequency is closer to like the, ten, the tens of hertz. Um, mm. So it's so easier to get into that mud. If, if, you, if you care about being, being stiff, right? So kind of like one of the things we're exploring is you know, we industrial automation has kind of been built around the idea that I'm going to make something super stiff and super accurate and then use that as like the sledgehammer that I'm going to apply to every single problem. And <laughs> we're, we're looking at it more of, okay, what if I can control force? What if I could actually customize the mechanisms so that I need fewer degrees of freedom? What if I can use modules that have lighter payload but can do it intermittently? Um, what if I can incorporate other things like springs, dampers, and smart ways? What if I can incorporate lots and lots of other sensing, right? So like cameras and connects and touch sensors and tactile sensing. You know, what if I can bring all of this other stuff to bear in a really flexible way? How does that change the equation of what we can apply? And so what that means is that we're going about it in a way that like if you try to automate a task in a traditional industrial way, 
um, we are going to fall short because kind of the bet we're making in terms of technology is kind of in, in a different direction. Um, so that's why I think most of our traction right now is in research and academia. Um, we feel that as, as a company, our big play will be in the industrial space, industrial space somewhere where, um, but we're still kind of hunting around to find out, um, you know, what, what the real needs, what the right kind of niche to slot into might be before we really kind of commit to it really, really hard. Oh, cool. So when y'all were designing and testing these modules, was there anything that was like, you know, unexpected that came up in terms of the design and you had to make a change or something like that? Um, well, the answer is always. <laughs> There's tons of stuff. Oh, yeah. But was um, there one thing that's like, like you can go so, back to and yeah, so, point so out? The, the biggest one that I, I will point to and... Uh, this is this is really kind of like under the hood, but there there was there was I will tell you there was a whole version of kind of this product that never saw the light of day. And if you came out and kind of saw us at booths at like the DARPA Robotics Challenge or maybe uh, some some conferences in like 2015, you will have seen this thing. And uh, what it was in terms of um, I say being un unexpected is like. It was this product, but in a form factor that you could picture as the opposite. It was longer. It was skinnier. Um, it didn't have a through bore. Um, connecting to it was way more clunky. So it was basically the same idea, but we just completely inverted between that product and this product. We completely inverted what we thought were the important things. Um, so I'll say what was kind of unexpected is we, we said, okay, we have this technology that we have wrapped up for snake modules, right? We knew we wanted to make it more general purpose. So we said, okay, let's make it. Uh, let's make it out of an aluminum extrusion. So we actually tried to build it into like a chunk of like a 8020 or like T-slot aluminum so that you could kind of connect to it really easily. Um, and then aside from that, we really focused on the inside, making it super powerful and, and super accurate and super strong. But we didn't really take a step back and think about, oh, you know what? This isn't really useful in and of itself. We have to connect it. Like there, it only really matters if we have three or four of these put together and the way they might be put together is extremely different. So we were doing things like using an industrial connector on the back, which was sealed and really robust. And, um, but it also costs like, you know, $200 for a cable to connect these things. And we're like, you know, it's gonna be really obnoxious if you're building a robot and you're going to have like 1500 bucks in cabling just to put it together. Um, <laughs> and then the, the, the form factor in terms of like how you mounted it, like if you were going to make an arm, you had to put these extra brackets around it. And then the cabling was all running around it. And you had service loops um and then there was um the the power of it was actually so high it actually kind of started to be a little bit dangerous at least it seemed to us so um we basically put a, a big pause on that and kind of went back to square one and said all right let's go to a little bit lower power and let's really think about how the heck this thing actually gets used in a system and that drove us to things like i talked about where it's like it seems silly to design it around a connector but like um, everybody can go to Amazon, just get gobs and gobs of Ethernet cables and connect the robot with Ethernet cables of any length they want. So let's design around that. Let's use standard Molex power connectors. Let's give them a through bore so the wiring isn't a nightmare. Um, and let's make it, make it a big flat pancake so they could basically do whatever they want with it in terms of mounting um, without really having to be like a, a real mechie about it and having to understand like how the forces and loads are being handled. Let's just kind of like handle all the cases. Um, so I would say that was probably the most unexpected thing was like we thought about the actuator so much um, it wound up kind of being a dead end. And what you see now was basically like a, a full restart on that, that design process. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, yeah. And, and, and what, what I kind of see from that is like, take, take, for example, uh, us at, at Macrofab, a lot of times we have to 
rapidly build a jig or come up with a solution or have something in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and if we're having to, you know, if we're looking for a solution and we see that, you know, this connector is going to take a while to get in and it's super expensive, that goes out the window real fast. But something like this could be a solution really quickly, especially if it's something like, oh, I just plug a Ethernet in and talk over this API and there we go. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. So we want we want to be able to most of the design decision most of the design decisions we make are basically based on okay, what gives us more flexibility and especially what makes the development easier or, mm -hmm. or faster, right? We want to be able to get from zero to a useful system or a useful prototype very quickly. And um, part of that's the form factor, and part of it is, is also just kind of us focusing as much as we can really just on the actuation and then kind of like the immediate steps out of what other glue you might need to hold the system together, whether it be brackets, whether it be kind of maybe some general purpose input output. But we basically want, want to make it so that you buy the actuators from us, and then we really want you to be able to get the rest of your robot from Amazon or McMaster Car. Like, basically, that's, that's kind I of our I'm not saying McMaster Car. <laughs> I, yeah. I've got two thumbs up right now. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, this goes right in our next question is supply chain. Um, so how much do you, like, do you all build in-house? Um. Because it sounds so, like you're more research, so you might not have like a whole, you know, factory floor of people building stuff. We don't we don't have like a, a full machine shop, but all the final assembly, all the testing, all the verification, calibration, that all happens in house. So um, we we outsource basically machine components and and boards um, for prototype stuff. We'll we will actually assemble and bake the boards in house, um, but. Uh, Basically, at the, kind of at the component level, things come from all around the world. Um, we have 3D printed parts, we have machine parts, we have extruded parts, we have motors, we have gears. Almost everything is custom specced um, and outsourced. And then the, uh, the all the final assembly comes is in house. And I think that's we'll probably stick with that for now um, for the foreseeable future, unless unless like we hit like mad mad scale. Where I I am more and more convinced of the importance of kind of controlling. The, the build process as much as possible. Um, and so like as, as we grow, I would actually love to bring like more machining and maybe even board capabilities in house, but um, definitely you don't want to give away like the, the, the final assembly and the calibration just because it, you very quickly, it amplifies your inertia, right? Like, so every time we build like a batch of 50 of these, there's, there's subtle tweaks that from the outside aren't apparent, but on the inside are making big differences in both kind of like the quality of the motion, the quality of the control, um, the time it takes to assemble, the reliability, the lifetime. And those are all things that get kind of really, really hard if you outsource the whole thing soup to nuts. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting line to walk, and we're, I'm still kind of dialing in and changing my mind in terms of kind of what we want to control where. Um, in terms of supply chain, I, I fully appreciate why it's called a chain, right? Like, it, it is a serial thing, and every link is broken. If any link is broken, you're screwed. It's not called, like, oh, yeah. a supply parallel. Well, well, I mean, if you're at the point where you're outsourcing the final, final assembly, then uh, your product is, is probably fairly mature. Yeah, um, but I, I, the, I do talk to a lot of startups that seem to try to, like, go pretty deep on the outsourcing, like, right from the start, which I think is kind of a, in my mind, kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, I think they're, they're a little, I think they're, I think, when it comes to hardware, it's very easy to think that you can kind of turn turn the key easier than you can, especially if you're trying to do anything that's like pushing the envelope in any direction. Um, 
And but uh, dude, I well also I will also say that when it comes to mechanical stuff, life is so much harder. Like so, our our board guy Curtis, like, and you know, for you guys, like, dude, circuit boards are like so. There's still a lot of room for for wiggle room, but like, it's so much more standardized than like getting machine parts and stuff. Um, it is it is way more of a standardized process in terms of boards and stencils and population and design rules and Gerber oh, files. Yeah. And, we we have our box of Legos and we kind of put them on a board. Yeah, yeah it, I'm, super, I'm super jealous of that process as a man. <laughs> well, you have a bunch of fasteners. It's just <laughs> yeah, okay. Sure, that's the same. <laughs> yeah. No, I was about to say is is like yeah, when you go to like you know a board house or whatever, mm-hmm. you download what they can do, and you punch that into your design tool and make sure your stuff can be designed. When you go to a machine shop, they're like, "How many zeros do you want to tack onto your precision?" It's like I don't know what's good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> do I need plus minus a mil or do i need you know does it matter yeah the 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 degree to which you tolerance things is um as much of an artist as as it is a science and then even as you work with with different shops shops just have different specialties and it's way more of kind of a softer line than it is like here are my capabilities it's like oh you know i have i have a you know a five axis cnc but Man, for whatever reason, I really know how to cut aluminum. Like, if it's sixty, sixty-one, or seventy, seventy-five, like you're good to go. If you need something that's like hardened steel, well, you, you know, there's this other guy that likes to do it. You know, some people have wire EDM and really know how to use it. Some people, you know, have basically they'll say EDM, but it's really just a sinker EDM that they use to like extrude taps that broke off. Um, so it's the yeah, it's just there's so many more variables, um, and it, <laughs> that, it that you, would be that you, would be so annoying if that was true in the in our field, where we had to know which manufacturer could manufacture specific parts better than others. That would be oh, that'd be terrible. No, that's, that's, that's exactly like based on the part that I design. In my mind, I like I I I basically have them quoted by different shops based on my experience and what I know that they're good at. Sure. Um, yeah, it's. I tell people like if you're if you're gonna be a mechie and you're gonna be in mechanical design like half of your uh, half your you should like there should be a class on like knowing when to plead and when to yell at vendors basically like ven- <laughs> ven- vendor relationships is actually like like an integral integral part of being a mechanical engineer. Oh sure sure you, you gotta you- shoot the shit with the with the guys at the shop right yeah oh yeah that, this, that, you could roll that into like. Um... Was it the engineering ethics class? Engineering ethics and how to yell at vendors 101. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, Hebby, right? Where did y'all come up with that name? Uh, so kind of, it's, it's basically an homage to our snake robot roots. Hebby is Japanese for snake. Um, and, uh, okay. And it's, uh, we wanted something that was short so you can, you can put it in front, of, in front of things and not have it make the words too cumbersome. Um, and, uh, Japanese is also an appropriate language for, for snakes and snake robots. Cause that's basically where that field started with, uh, a guy named professor Hirose back in the seventies, who was building snake robots out of basically like transistor logic parts, like long before you know, we came around and we're doing, doing crazier things. Yikes. Well, that's a cool name. Yeah. Thanks. So, uh, what's, what's the website in case our listeners want to check it out? The website is heavyrobotics.com uh, and also heavy.us if you want to type fewer characters. Okay. That's H-E-B-I. H- H-E-B-I, yes. All right, cool. And I guess with that, do you want to sign us out, Dave? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you, guys. This was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Dave Rawlinson. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.